Well, good morning. In our continuing theme for our community chapels this semester, we're talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. And it's really strange for me to hear my voice coming out of here, but sort of coming from a disembodied. This is really strange, this headset. <laughs> Never used this one. Anyway. And that's not a fault on the, uh, the PA boys. It's just different. Kind of hearing myself in stereo. Well, <laughs> enough about me, though. Uh, <laughs> what it means to be made in the image of God, particularly how marriage and sexual intimacy in marriage is an expression of that. Last week, Ray spoke to us about singleness and how that is an expression in the image of God. And I, I, what I'm offering here today is not seen as a, uh, a, a contradiction, but a complementary stream of uh, what Ray offered us last week. Um, I might push back a little bit, but that's not the purpose, um, and we can sort that out later on. I want to begin with just um, uh, a, a brief interchange, conversation. I had in the atrium with one of my students last week. I was just coming in on, on my way to the office, and uh, Nicole Halushka, you know, are going to it's not embarrassing to her or anything like that. Uh, she just she was having a discussion with one of her classmates. I think it was uh, JJ about this whole issue of singleness and marriage and what all that means. And uh, she she asked me just sort of out of the blue. She said, "Is your wife your best friend?" And on the spur of the moment, I, it didn't take me too long, and I said, well, yes, of course. But I think I gave her the wrong answer. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced I did. It's not that my wife has fallen, you know, since the weekend has fallen out of favor with me or anything like that. <laughs> it's not the point here. <laughs> but it, what, what that does, it, it, expresses, it expresses not too much, but too little. And, and as I've been contemplating that, especially over the weekend and preparing for this chapel, this talk this morning, the, the image of Genesis 2 is that the two shall become one flesh. And friendship is something that we talk about to those outside of ourselves. It's a relational context for the other. But my wife and I aren't just friends. She's part of me right? So, she, she doesn't… She, friendship obviously works in that context, but she's not just my best friend. She's more than that. She is part of me, just as I am part of her. So, friendship doesn't seem to do that justice. It's more. I'm going to talk a little bit about that in this morning. We have two passages that were read for us from Genesis 2. And then, so the opening chapters of Scripture, and then the concluding chapters, Revelation 19 and 21. And in both accounts, and you probably picked it up, marriage figures prominently. It's at the center of both accounts. In Genesis 2, it's connected to God's first commissioning of humankind to be His image bearers in creation. In Revelation, we see the vocation of image bearing reaching its full fulfillment as the church 
is now described as the bride of Christ. So here's my plan this morning. I want to look at marriage and its, and its role in image-bearing as it's outlined for us at the start of history, Genesis 2, and then we're going to do a very quick history of marriage in the Old Testament. We're going to look briefly at Jesus and the redemption or reclamation of marriage, and then we are going to look at its eschatological, the, the fulfillment of marriage, and then end with a few thoughts of what it means to live in between the times in our own marriages. So it's pretty ambitious, but I've got a bit of time, and so here we go. Hang on. My purpose, that's the plan, my purpose this morning, and it's already been, I think, prayed for, is that God will lead us into all truth, and not just truth as something we understand intellectually, but will work in us His, now I'm going to use a a technical term, sanctification, but I want to use a better term, His saintliness. That's a much more concrete human term. God isn't concerned just about sanctification in the abstract. He's concerned about our saintliness, that we actually become good people. And when we start thinking about sanctification in those terms, it brings it home a whole lot more personally than something we can sort of hold off in a theological discussion at a distance, doesn't it? We, God is concerned about our sanctification, that we become people conformed to His image. And so, if, if that's where we want to go, and if my talk doesn't accomplish that or help us along the road this morning, um, then dismiss it. But I offer it to you in that light. So, we begin with a brief history of marriage. And like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So, we're going to look at the creation account in Genesis chapter 2. And the, the account that was read in its somewhat truncated version by Douglas, we see that marriage is the completion of an extended creation account. It is actually the capstone. It, it is the climax to which these two parallel accounts seem to be building here. At least that's the arrangement uh, that, that, that's, that's the arrange, or where the arrangement would sort of indicate things are going. In chapter 1, we see an account of creation as it moves from heaven to earth, and it is an ordered creation at every stage. It's this interlocking set of complementary pairs. We see heaven, earth, light, dark, heavens being populated by heavenly bodies, and then the three spheres of the cosmos, the sky being filled by their complementary creatures of birds, the sea, fish, land, animals, plants. Everything is laid out in this orderly set of binary complementary pairs. And we come to the story of humankind, and we're given this special pronouncement on them, this pronouncement of blessing that says they are to be image bearers. They, God blesses them, or man and woman, with image-bearing capacity. And it's followed by a description of their image-bearing vocation. Be fruitful. Continue my creative work in the cosmos that I have placed you in, that I have given you there. Have dominion, continue to steward the earth. And all at the end of that is seen 
with God's stamp of his, his moral pronouncement of approval. It is very, very good. And so if we look at image bearing in this vocational capacity, that is that we enact God's wise stewardship and fruitfulness in the world, we are His designated regents, even as we have this priestly function to reflect the praises of creation back to their Creator. That's image bearing. And in Genesis 2, we are brought down into Eden, the image-bearing starter kit, if you will. God plants a garden. It is fruitful. It has all sorts of potential opportunity. There are all sorts of precious metals there that are going to be there for refinement. It's interesting when you read again and look closely at the end of the last passage we read in Revelation 19 and 21, we see those raw materials, those precious metals in their unrefined state now being brought as refined jewels to in, and offered before the throne, right? There's a beautiful kind of symmetry there. Eden is a mountain. It seems to be high ground. Otherwise, rivers couldn't flow from it. Rivers descend from it. It is the first picture of the gate of heaven, where heaven and earth meet in communion, where God, where the dimension of God's rule, the heavens, connect with the dimension of, his, of where man is allowed to rule, the earth. It's also a place of righteous submission. There are two trees, the tree of life, and then, with the single prohibition, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's a covenant-keeping starter kit. It's an image-bearing starter kit. All is set, except there's one piece of the puzzle that's missing. The Adam, the human, has no complementary counterpart. Creation has been a series of complementary counterparts up until now, and all of a sudden we come to the Adam, and as Ray pointed out to us last week, it is not good for man to be alone. There's an incompleteness here. It doesn't fit with the rest of creation. Something has to follow to make it full. But none of the existing animals will do for the human to carry out this task of image bearing. So God puts Adam to sleep. And what, what happens here is Adam, as God brings the animals to Adam, he, he names them which is a subordinating act, right? They're not his equal, and it's very clear. And so God puts Adam to sleep and takes a rack of ribs out of him. The, the word here isn't just single rib. It's like a whole side, like just whack, you know? You, you've been to, you've been to the, at IG, uh, yeah, at IGA, you know, you watch the butcher at work there taking a side of ribs, whoom, you know? And then he fashions. Oh, I thought it was a great image. He takes from that rack of ribs, and he begins to build and fashion something beautiful. Creates woman. Notice that up until now, this whole account is all about God. He's the chief actor in this drama. To this point, you look at all the roles he plays. He is creator. He is a gardener. He is a lawgiver. He is an employer. Go work. He is something of a life coach, 
It's not good for you to be alone. You need some help here, Adam. He is an anesthetist. He puts Adam to sleep. He's the surgeon. He is the architect, designer, builder, and finally, he is matchmaker. Isn't that great? The whole range of cultural activities on display here, and there's sort of an intimation that that's what humans are going to be doing in some way, shape, or form as they enter into their image-bearing capacities. And the whole account culminates with the gift of the bride. And two things to notice here. She is something special. Adam isn't naming her in the subordinate way that he does the animals. That's going to happen after the fall. This is... This is an appreciation. This is, you know, you think of the old Batman and Robin series, and, and you can just hear Robin saying, you know, holy help me, Batman, right? This is just, this is somebody cool. This is somebody, I, I never would have thought of this, right? She is special, and she is complimentary. She is other, and she fits. And now it completes Adam in a way that he was not. And it's the first reference here to that completion and that reference to that completion and complementarity being expressed in sexual terms. Man, woman. Up until that time, the, the uses for the Adam are somewhat ambiguous, but here we get the first unambiguous expression of man and woman, of sexuality. It's the first clear sexual differentiation expressed. And together now, they are ready to carry out their task as image bearers. And the important point here is not gender roles, because none are given. Rather, the text chooses to focus on relational intimacy, complementarity, and communion. Complementarity of counterparts. Covenant ties as Ray pointed out last week, that supersede or are placed over blood ties. A man shall leave his family and be united with his wife. So the place of sexual intimacy is covenantal love and complementarity with your sexual other. That seems to be it. That is the capacity for image-bearing. That's what God equips his first couple with, and that's the picture we're given. And it seems fairly consistent throughout all of Scripture, even in its distorted form. The emphasis here in this passage is on joy and delight in the gift of marriage. Something new has been created in sexual union. Adam has changed after the operation. It's not simply that Adam was split in half and is now rejoined. The Adam is still the Adam, but he's, he's different. He's now male, and the woman is now female. They are one flesh, and it takes place within this protected hedge of covenantal love between a man and a woman. It's, it's why we still have the vows today in marriage, right? That there will be, that this kind of intimacy can only be nurtured and protected in a trusting environment when, when two people, a man and a woman, commit to each other. When they say, you know, I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish for the rest of our lives according to God's holy law. This is my solemn vow. Those are the basic 
covenantal commitments we make in marriage. Now, if you go online and look at marriage vows, especially drawn up improvised marriage vows, other than this, you can get some really weird, strange stuff out there. People promise each other to, you know, warm each other's toes in bed and get each other a cup of water. So, no, come on. <laughs> That's just trivial. This is, this is it. This is, this is the hedge which allows the kind of intimacy of sexual union to be fully enjoyed and appreciated as an expression of love. And this is the beginning of the projection of image-bearing, of God's reign and into His created order and reflecting His praises back to Him. And it's done with a context of feeling no shame. There is, there is total transparency, nakedness, and no shame. Well, in Genesis 3, things go off the rails rather badly, don't they? We get the rejection of righteous submission, the abuse of stewardship. It's only after the entry of sin into the world that Adam now names in a subservient way his wife, Eve. So, nakedness and shame replace trust and transparency. Power and alienation are now the order of the day. And in the Old Testament, if we now look through it, most of what we see when it comes to the lives of married couples, it's not really a promising picture, is it? If you just sort of scan mentally through what's on offer in the pages of Scripture regarding the, the passages that recount married couples, there's way more that's negative and troublesome than it's positive. The covenant becomes the means of coercion. Sex is now a weapon of the strong to be wielded over the weak. So we get it in forms of polygamy, of, of patriarchy, of domination. All we have to do is look at the lives of Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, and these are the good guys. It takes its form in the expression of rape. We have to look at the count of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Prostitution, Judah. Now, you've heard me speak on Judah a number of years ago, and you know what I think of him, those of you who were around back then. Adultery and murder, David again. Incest, Tamar and Ammon. And this is just a short list of other deviances and disordered desires that seem to be on offer as sin permeates and undercuts this kind of covenantal intimacy. How many healthy marriages are we actually given in Scripture? I could think of three, and even these are a bit of a stretch because we don't know that much about them. Ruth and Boaz, at least it's a nice romance. We don't know what happens after they were married. We trust that it was going to continue well. Mary and Joseph, I think probably the best one, and then perhaps Priscilla and Aquila. But beyond that, we aren't given much in the way of positive portrayals. And yet, God continues to affirm marriage. It still represents the heart of His covenant that He makes with His own people, despite our own ongoing unfaithfulness. So, on the positive side, it's not all bleak. You know, why would the Scriptures include the Song of Solomon, where, where we still see a healthy picture of married couples delighting in sexual intimacy, 
within the context of covenant commitment. We see God's yearning for His own people in spite of their unfaithfulness in the story of Hosea and Gomer, Gomer who constant, as he is com, uh, commanded to marry a prostitute and she is continually unfaithful to him. Hosea is to be faithful to her just as God continues to pursue His unfaithful people. The prophetic images of Israel as they are talked about in their own covenant unfaithfulness by the prophets, explained in very explicit sexual terms that they have been out whoring, they have prostituted themselves, and yet God remains the faithful one who calls them back. So why is sex this ongoing theme or theological flashpoint in the Old Testament? You'd think you could come up with something better. Well, I want to offer two connected reasons. First, it is, if we, as we go back to Genesis 2, the most intimate expression of covenantal human love. It's what God's given us. And secondly, it is simultaneously, and here I think this is, this is beginning to plumb, certainly not explicate, but plumb the mystery of sexual communion. And that is, it is a yearning to connect with the transcendent. In other words, in the beauty of sexual intimacy, within covenant love, we are not only giving of ourselves to our partners, we are yearning for that sense of intimacy with the transcendent. We, to put it one way, we want to touch the face of God. So, even in its perverse and distorted forms, our sexual desires take us in this dual direction. It is a mystery. And, and why is our own society today so obsessed with sex? In a secular society like the West, the only way, if you've denied God for the most part, if you've denied these sorts of supernatural things, it's the only means left to touch the transcendent. And so we're simultaneously drawn and, in a sense, repelled by its religious nature. And it's this kind of schizophrenia that plays out in so many perverse and distorted ways. It's the only means humans have left to worship something even as they deny the object of their worship. So, even in the midst of a fallen world, God continues to keep covenant faithfulness. He sends His Son, Jesus. And when Jesus begins His ministry, where is His first miracle? It's at a wedding, right? Don't think that's by accident. New kingdom, new creation, new covenant, and marital intimacy still affirmed as the central means by which that covenant is expressed. Intimacy and faithfulness, but as the Revelation passage mentioned, I am making all things new. It's not going to be the same. Now, it's widened to, to have this eschatological focus. Marital intimacy is going to be the way God's people are prepared as His bride for the fulfillment of His kingdom to triumph here on earth. So marriage and image-bearing are still held together, but they're expanded. And at the end of the history, marriage is the, is the image of the fully realized kingdom, the church now purified as the bride for the bridegroom, Jesus. 
and we are reminded again that marriage is about our good, but it's also about God's purposes. It is His story, and it's His covenant love that redeems and purifies His bride, restoring the broken image of God in His people. We are made for Christ, even as He, in one sense, by becoming human, is made for us. So what does that mean for us? Living in the middle of the story, living between the times, the passing of the old and the inauguration of the new. For us who live east of Eden, even as we look for the new Jerusalem. Well, we are to enjoy marriage as God's gift to us, not merely for our own happiness, but to work out our saintliness and sanctification. Gary Thomas, in his book, Sacred Marriage, proposes this question, and I think it's a good one. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, God doesn't neglect our happiness, but our happiness perhaps is a byproduct of something much bigger in marriage, and that is our holiness. What if marriage is about image bearers recovering our vocational image to be God's stewards and His fruitful people who not only express and steward His creation, but express His praises back to Him. Essentially together as man and wife, looking and acting like Jesus. And the best expression of this we get in the New Testament is Paul in Ephesians 5. But in reading that passage in Ephesians 5, we so quickly go, we, we turn it into the battle of the sexes. You know, we, we ignore the fact that it starts out, be submissive to one another, and we just zero in on the fact that, okay, wives, be submissive to your husband, and then the men conveniently forget the rest. And there's a lot more to be said to men than there is to women in that passage. Ultimately, men are to recover that servant, self-giving, Jesus-like love for their wives, even as wives are called to respect their husbands. Respect and love in mutual submission, being of one flesh, this is the miracle of the gospel. And this is what our marriages are to be, not only within the body of Christ, but to reflect that outside the body of Christ, to invite others to have an, uh, into the kingdom, even as they see a picture of healthy, holy sexuality within the protective confines of covenant love, the meeting of complementary opposites, the two becoming one. It's, it's what makes marriage at once the most difficult and challenging thing to live out and the source of incredible joy. And at the end, that is going to be that source, that, that relational intimacy that we only scratch the surface of now and experience imperfectly now is on offer for God and His whole church as the marriage, the union, the eschatological union between Jesus and His people. And so that's what we are called to live out. That's what we are called to delight in. That's what we are called to have joy in. God's good, God's good purposes are saintliness.